0: All right, thanks everyone and welcome. Uh, Welcome to the session entitled Clinical and Research Updates for Chromatopsia, Choroideremia, Blue Cone Monochromacy, Cone Rod Dystrophy, and X-Linked Retinoschesis. The session's going to last about 85 minutes, and uh, because we have a nice small group here, we can really make this interactive. Um, Before we do that, I want to let you know that if you're using an assisted living device, please turn to channel number three. Um, and please silence your cell phone as well. So we are so um, honored to have with us Drs. Christine Kay as well as Dr. Rob Huffnakel. And let me just give you a little bit of background um, from them and then I will pass the mic over. Um, my name is Claire Gelfman and I currently tr- serve as Chief Scientific Officer here at the Foundation. And we really wanna thank you for being here, for your support, um, and we are here for you uh, both this weekend but also f- as a resource for you and your family. So Dr. Kay is a vitreoretinal retinal surgeon. Uh, she joined Vitreo Retinal Associates in Gainesville, Florida in the fall of 2014. But prior to this, she was an assistant professor and director of the Retinal Fellowship and Retinal Genetic Service at the University of Florida. She graduated from Harvard with a degree in neuroscience and went on to medical school at the University of Florida. She completed her ophthalmology residency at the University of South Florida where she was chief resident and completed her Vitrio retinal fellowship training at the University of Iowa. And during her fellowship there, she developed particular interest in inherited retinal diseases, and this has really become the niche of her career here. Dr. Kay is very interested in characterizing natural history of diseases in patients with various inherited retinal diseases, and we'll hear about some of those today. She's also the Director of Electrophysiology, Retinal Genetics, and Clinical Trials, now at Vitreo Retinal Associates, and is involved as the principal investigator in 15 clinical trials currently underway. She has a large inherited retinal disease patient population with over 900 patients in her clinical database, with 600 of these that have been genotyped. She is very interested in genetic testing and has written articles and given lectures on the importance and logistics of genetic testing for IRDs. She's organized a faculty of interla- international experts in inherited retinal diseases and has taught an instructional course on retinal genetics and gene therapy at the annual American Academy of Ophthalmology Conference for the past seven years. Very impressive, Dr. K. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Huffnagel, to my immediate left, A 2021 Lasker Scholar is dedicated to understanding mechanisms of human genome variation that cause blindness in children. He uses a translational approach combining clinical, molecular approaches, and developmental biology to improve the diagnosis and establish gene disease and genotype-phenotype relationships, and we'll hear more about that today. In particular, he uses genomics, stem cell engineering, and gene editing to establish patient-centered disease models for translational and preclinical studies. After receiving his MD and PhD from the University of Cincinnati, he completed his pediatrics and clinical genetics residency at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, followed by fellowships in clinical ophthalmic genetics at the National Eye Institute and clinical molecular genetics and genomics at the Human National Genome Research Institute. In his free time, he loves spending time with his family and his dog, entitled Helix. All right, so I'm going to turn the mics over to my esteemed colleagues, and we look forward to hearing your words. Do you have
1: the questions about more people? So since we have such a a small room, um, I thought we would um, just sort of do a quick... Read the room. Uh, raise your hands if you're interested in hearing about XYZ. So um, the diseases that we're supposed to be talking about in the room are um, achromatopsia, which would be both B3, or A3, or other types. So anybody want to just raise your hand if you're interested in hearing about the achromatopsia diseases? Okay. How about the blue cone monochromacy diseases? These are on our list, so I'm just going to keep going through. choroideremia. Okay. And cone rod dystrophy. And that can include a couple different things. Okay. And X-linked retinoschisis. Okay, good. So we're gonna cover, we're gonna, um, I guess I can start and I'll just kinda, I'm gonna, just gonna go through a little brief um, couple minute overview of some of the highlights of those diseases. Um, And then Rob's going to go through some of the kind of genetics and genotype-phenotype considerations, genetic testing considerations, and then we'll mostly just have a question and answer where we can kind of punt back and forth and have some open discussion. But just so we have sort of a basis, since we're sort of just supposed to cover these topics a little bit, um, I'll start with achromatopsia, even though no one raised their hand on that, just very briefly, um, since it is an active um, research disease, just to give you some updates on what's going on with that. Achromatopsia is a cone-based disease, so patients who have achromatopsia, which is and the one out of thirty thousand-ish range, a pretty uh, rare disease. Um, they have no cone function, so they're born with no cone function. It's, it's uh, basically an infantile onset, complete lack of cone function. There are multiple different genes that can cause it. CNGB3 and CNGA3 are the most common, and we have many clinical trials going on right now in the U.S. Um, and in other countries as well for um, achromatopsia. So at my site. We're a site for the AGTC sponsored achromatopsia trials which are both cngb 3 and A3. Um, We've actually completed enrollment in those phase one, two trials which has been publicly released um, with even some releases at some of these recent meetings that we've been to, ARVO. um, We had the Innovation Summit meeting in Retina Society. So some of our ophthalmology conferences, we've released some data which I'm able to share a couple, just highlight points of that, is that at least for the AGTC studies, they've released that they've seen some so first of all, on safety, so relative safety, um, they did have in the pediatric high dose, um, which they've released some um, what they call SAEs or uh, or uh, serious adverse events uh, that were probably related to to the therapy um, in the pediatric high dose. You know, so one thing that these um, uh, that happens in these uh, most of these trials is we do a dose escalation in adult patients, and then we usually take that mean tolerated dose into the pediatric patient population, sort of generally assuming that that mean-tolerated dose would equate from adults to pediatrics. And one of the interesting topics that we've had at some of these conferences is maybe that is not a correct assumption. You know, we Tylenol dose weight base are, you know, we give kids Tylenol, so maybe we should be weight basing or considering different dose calculations for pediatrics. But th- these are some of the discussions that happen because, it, long story short, and this was press release recently, um, and, and some of the pediatric, uh, they've all done fine. The kids end up doing fine, but they did have some inflammation in the eyes, um, inflammation um, that can be profound. You can have robust inflammation, need to be um, either treated, sometimes even um, in the eyes injected with steroids, intravenous steroids. So sometimes um, when you hear inflammation, that doesn't sound like a big deal if it's your skin, you know, put some cream on it. But in the eye, inflammation can be damaging if we don't treat it quickly. And so we take care of these patients very closely and carefully in clinical trials, and we treat, um, and people almost always, you know, get better and do better, but we take these things very seriously. Um, so the achromatopsia trials, um, again, have completed enrollment for AGTC, and the company did also release that when they looked at the data between cngb 3 and A3, for whatever reason, and no one fully understands this, There are some theories, the patients had a, there was a better efficacy signal in the patients with cngb 3 That's something to do, it's very complicated actually, with how that gene um, causes a, a channel Uh, a channelopathy, which means the way that it affects the cells and how it affects the photoreceptor uh, transduction cascade. But um, we saw some improvement in... um, uh, the, the static perimetry, which is a fancy visual field where we see how light uh, the patient's retina responds to light, or the patient how they see light. We saw some improvement, particularly in our high dose and some of the pediatric middle doses um, in CNGB3. And then they also do a light aversion test. There's some fancy tests we do called photoaversion. Patients with achromatopsia, and maybe some of you in the room with cone rod dystrophy. Or other diseases, um, notice light aversion. Anybody want to raise their hand if, if light sensitivity is part of your disease? You know, so that's a real common part of m- multiple diseases. So it's an interesting topic. How do we measure that as an outcome measure in trials? You know, how do you say how much does it hurt when we shine light at you? And so we've ha- we spent a long time in these trials trying to refine an endpoint called photo aversion. We have a couple different ways. It's called the LDT or light discomfort test. And now there's test one and test two. Test one is done on this big diagnosis. If you've ever had an ERG, anybody in the room had an ERG done? <laughs> so you know that big dome that you put your head in in the dark room. We use that and we then we literally shine a bright light in the box and we ask you with a button box to say if you tolerate it or if it's painful. We have different ways, we literally have a script that our coordinator reads you of how to word that question because we don't want it to be exquisitely painful but we want you to say that the light is uncomfortable and then click and tell us when that light gets bright enough. Then Baskin Palmer and Byron Lamb's group developed something called the OPA which is another way, a real fancy way of measuring light discomfort so it is sort of be, being evaluated by the FDA as a potential endpoint. Um, <clears throat> we don't know if it's approvable or a pivotal outcome yet, but that's one of the tests. And so, interestingly, in the achromatopsia studies where they treated one eye, the, the finding was that they didn't have a treatment effect between the untreated the untreated eye to the treated eye, but they did see in patients who were treated they have a bilateral improvement. And so, both eyes are getting better, even if you only treat one. There's some interesting theories of cortically why that might happen and the ways our cortical pathways passed. Um, uh, So the patients, there there was a certain number of patients, I can't remember what it was, of um, patients who were treated who had a bilateral improvement in their light sensitivity compared to the untreated patients. So long story short, some sort of typical safety concerns that probably we can deal with with correct steroid regimens, but we need to not ignore it and to pay attention to it. And some Possible efficacy signals in the achromatopsia studies, enough that the company has come forward saying that they plan, you never know what people are going to do, but they plan to move forward their CNGB3 program into a phase three trial, but it's probably not for a year or two away. You have to go to the FDA and plan your phase three. They're not going to move forward the A3 trial. And then Mira GTX, which has now been acquired and collaborated with Janssen, they have also done phase one, two achromast- achromatopsia studies in both A3 and B3. They have not publicly released if they're moving forward into other phases of trials, um, but that trial is also not released data yet, so I can't give you any data on that. Blue cone monochromacy, really rare, super rare disease, probably one out of 100,000. It's an X-linked disease, which means it's on the X chromosome and that you see it in males in the family. We're going to talk about choroidoremia in a minute, very similar as far as that X-linked inheritance pattern. Blue cone monochromacy um, is similar to achromatopsy. In fact, we often confuse it. I get patients sent and referred for my achromatopsy trials, and they actually have blue cone monochromacy. They usually have also poor color vision, um, and nystagmus, and vision in the 20-200 range. In general, they have a little bit better visual acuity, and they have a little bit of a color spectrum, versus my achromats have zero color vision. They're colorblind completely. It's an X-linked disease, and interestingly, there is one company um, developing, it's called Adverum. Anybody heard of Adverum? They have a couple other trials out there. Um, They're developing an intravitreal gene therapy, um, clinical trial for X-linked blue cone monochromacy. It's an an opsin, which is one of the um, cone-related pigments, Um, and so the gene, I believe what they're actually replacing with an AAV vector is the L-opsin gene, uh, it will be intravitrally injected. So again, not you need to go to surgery; just an in-clinic intravitreal injection. Um, that's the plan for blue cone monochromacy. Um, cone rod dystrophy, I think, is important to mention because it's really just a huge group of diseases. Um, and some of the most common are ABCA4, which is also the Stargardt gene. Stargardt has a spectrum. ABCA4 has a spectrum of causing just Stargardt disease, which is sort of macular only disease, to causing cone-rod dystrophy, which is pan-retinal involvement, where they would have ERG changes. Um, and then other common Gs are CRX. Um, some of the syndromes, bardet biedl syndrome is one of my really classic cone-rod dystrophies, where we actually see the phenotype. You know, I see what a cone-rod dystrophy looks like on ERG, as well as the fundus changes. And they have other syndromic issues. Um, and then RPGR, which is X-linked RP, actually often manifests first as a cone-rod dystrophy, so the, meaning the cones have a Have abnormality first, and you see that on the ERG, uh, and it depends on which mutation the RPGR um, gene uh, has. And then um, Gucci 2D, uh, which can cause LCA, also has a dominant form that has a real classic dominant form of a cone rod dystrophy. No um, current Gene therapy trials, um, let me make sure before I say that that that's not incorrect, uh, for for any of those that I've listed just there, but um, Shannon Boy, um, who's a big board winner here and board of directors winner and huge researcher here, she just happens to be not here this year, she's developed a therapy, uh, wrote a really interesting paper on it with combined CRISPR Cas9, you probably have heard a little bit about um, CRISPR and gene editing at this conference. Um, so, uh, this is in mice. She has a Gucci dominant Gucci 2D knockout mouse. Um, it was called a knock in mouse. But, in any event, so, so she does CRISPR Cas9 gene editing to knock down the abnormal gene, and then she supplements augmentation gene therapy to replace with the wild type gene. Gucci 2D, this is published in IOVS a couple years ago, basic science, but it does bring to mind the possibility of a future potential clinical trial for dominant, and that's a real common form of dominant cone rod dystrophy, Um, but not not in clinical trials yet. Lots of trials for Stargardt, but I assume if you had Stargardt, you'd be in the Stargardt room, so we won't talk about Stargardt in a moment. Um, Choroteremia, and the two that we're really probably going to focus on because people in the room are interested... Croideremia, very rare disease, yet we have a lot of patients at, at every Visions Conference with this, and we have a lot of clinical trials that have either happened or are currently happening for croideremia, so it's a really hot topic. Um, X-linked disease, so it means it's it carried on the X chromosome. Typically, as opposed to other types of X-linked diseases, m- females are not aggressively affected, but you can females are carriers, and you can certainly see some manifesting carrier changes. I have a couple manifesting choroideremia women who have some fundus changes that I really won't get into, but typically it's the males that are really affected with this disease. Um, they tend to have spared fovea, so the center of the retina tends to be spared for most of their life uh, until um, with, with the shrinking visual field, night vision loss, poor visual field, so we're shrinking visual field, but the, those foveal cones are maintained until, and this is just total ballpark numbers here, but maybe around 45, 50, um, the, the central uh, cones can go, and they can go fairly rapidly to where a patient can go from 2020 to 2200 to hand motion to, um, to within you know a couple years you know so that period of uh, sort of a precipitous decline when those foveal cones are lost um, is a very very difficult time um, and there have been multiple gene therapy trials actually there's a couple good review papers on summarizing the gene therapy um, attempts and I think there's um, you know, some Dominic Fisher's group has written a really good overview of some of the choroideremia updates Michael McLady's group so. Um, lots of good papers, but to, to boil it down, um, as frustrating as this is, the, the probably the the one that was the closest to an FDA approval, did unfortunately not show not meet its primary endpoint. and That was Biogen Nightstar, uh, Robert McLaren's group. He's often a speaker at these events, but not here this year. Um, they, uh, and this you know, there's controversy on whether this was the correct visual endpoint or not. Um, But they they, they chose visual acuity, three lines of visual acuity, which is what the FDA really wants in the U.S., which is 15 letters of ETDRS improvement as their primary pivotal outcome. And they didn't quite meet that. They did have some improvement, it just wasn't three lines. Um, interestingly, in the EMA, they only require two lines. So maybe, you know, there's a lot of if this was done, if that was done, if things were done differently, would it have been approved? Because there was an effect. There's no question that there was an effect. Um, it just was it enough to get FDA approval? And the answer for that particular trial was no, it didn't meet the endpoint that was required by the FDA. The company, um, which Nightstar was acquired by Biogen. Um, at least has publicly released at, uh, that, that that particular trial will be followed, those patients will be followed in, a, in something called solstice, which is a long-term follow-up, but they won't pursue that program right now, although I've also heard rumblings, you know, that maybe they will pr- keep looking at the data, and, and maybe they will in the future, either, you know, they could always sell the asset to another, you know, another company, so it might be picked up again, um, but at the moment, you know, at least what's press-released is they have not, they didn't meet their primary endpoint, and they're not, currently planning at the moment to pursue a further program. Um, 4D Therapeutics is another company that's actively still in crotiremia research right now, and it's an intravitreal therapy, which is also controversial. The big question is, will it work? You know, will we be able to transduce photoreceptors if we just inject and, and, and RPE cells, and, you know, in this disease, um, if we just inject intravitreally, lots of interesting, good preclinical data showing with some of these really fancy vectors that these companies are developing that maybe we can at least to, to treat the foveal cones or a little ring around the fovea and a few splattered cells throughout the periphery, and maybe you know, maybe that will be enough. Um, to protect vision. And so that company um, does have an ongoing trial with intravitreal injections. I believe it's still in dose escalation, meaning they're checking doses um, in males with uh, choroideremia. Um, and um, there, there are other choroideremia um, subretinal trials that are still completing their follow-up and things like that. But, um, and, and again, might be picked up again in the future by other companies, but that's sort of the overview of where the uh, choroideremia research is right now. And the last I'll talk about is X-linked retinoschesis, which has um, quite a bu- quite a bunch of updates to tell you about, which is exciting. So just the brief overview. It's one of the more common ones of what I've just mentioned. It's actually probably one out of 8,000, one out of 10,000 prevalence. I have multiple males in my clinic. Um, and families, again, it's an X-linked disease, so we do see this runs in males and families. Um, We hear about the classic spoke wheel appearance of the macula, so they end up with schesis. And the reason they have schesis, which is, think of the word schesis as splitting of the layers, um, is because they're lacking this RS1 or retinoschisin 1 uh, protein, which sort of is like the sticky glue of the retina and kind of holds together the sponge of the retina in a nice flat configuration without RS1 functioning normally, which is interestingly a secretable protein, so even though it's probably expressed in the photoreceptors and most important to be replaced in their photoreceptors, it kind of goes goes everywhere within the retina. Um, and in any event, with you lack this functional protein, the retina literally just splits. splits. And so I, I wish I could show you an image here, but just imagine a you know a flat sponge versus fl- fill up a sponge with fluid and watch that sponge get fat with big cavities within it. And so that's what the retinoschisis macula looks like, and that obviously makes the patient's vision blurry. They can't look through those cystic cavities and have good. Um, a good resolution at their foveal cones. They also can have peripheral schesis, so there is maybe in 30% of patients a risk of peripheral retinal detachments, tears, needing surgeries, hemorrhages in the vitreous. Um, I, I hear the number up to 30%, I don't see that. I think the number actually probably is smaller. Um, those would be the patients that often are coming into clinic with the problem, so I think there's always bias to numbers. Um, so I personally in my own really big database think the numbers may be less than 10%, you know, patients who have peripheral pathology. Maybe I'm lucky in my clinic, but um, tends to be less common. I'd say, you know, in my population, maybe 90% just have macular schesis and maybe tiny little shallow areas of schesis, but have never had a detachment, never had a vitreous hemorrhage that I've that I've noted. Um, There were two trials uh, that are intravitreal, one by the National Eye Institute, Paul Sieving's group, and one by AGTC. Uh, These were intravitreal trials and just intravitrally injecting the RS1 protein. We know that's potentially and probably is more inflammatory because it's not as immunoprivileged an environment as the subretinal space, which is why most of the gene therapy trials try to do a vitrectomy and get the vector safely into the subretinal space. Um, but, with that said, there are multiple trials also looking at intervitreals, and so um, it made sense for X-linked retinoschisis because, number one, they were worried if they do surgery, maybe those eyes would have an increased risk of retinal detachment because of what I was mentioning with that potential percentage of peripheral schisis and detachment risks. And number two, they thought, well, it's a secretable protein. It maybe doesn't matter if we get it directly to the photoreceptor in the subretinal space. Maybe we can just throw it in the eye and see where it gets and get some RS1 protein. Um, there have been multiple other papers that have sort of questioned that and fo- sort of found that it really does need to be expressed in the photoreceptor cell for it to work. Um, and long story short, the AGTC trial, had, this is press, I'm, I'm very careful, I don't want to say what's publicly released, but the, the, the AGTC trial did press release uh, maybe a, a year ago or, uh, or so that they did not see any efficacy in their trial with uh, so no efficacy signals. Um in the treated eyes versus the untreated, and there were safety issues. So there were patients that were unfortunately dealing with chronic inflammation, um, even out to six plus months, requiring either drops or oral steroids or reinduction of steroids because they would have recurring chronic inflammation in the eye. And again, that can be problematic. We don't want to make someone worse. You know, do no harm is still one of our, one of our number one um, goals as physicians and investigators is to not make anyone worse. Um, so that, that company correctly terminated that program, followed those patients out, take care of those patients, but no further enrollment and no plan for further intravitreal treatment for that, um, for, for the AGTC group. The, um, that I'm aware of. The the other group is um, NEI. They are still enrolling patients. Um, I don't know if they're actively enrolling patients, but it's still open. And they, um, Paul Seving, actually just gave a talk with me, a panel talk on ocular inflammation and gene therapy at this com- this conference called ASGCT, American Cell and Gene Therapy, something or other. So um, we gave uh, he gave a very interesting good update um, that they have been thinking about maybe the ex-sync nesquikis patient has more baseline immune response than other patients without. Um, so they've been checking blood levels, and these patients actually have higher baseline pretreatment immunity levels to different antibodies um, than if, I were to, if we were to check a control patient. So really interesting finding that we need to pay attention to the immune system in these patients, and maybe that's part of why some patients have different variable immune responses and Maybe it's more that than the fact that it was di- directed intravitrally. You know, others, others argue, no, it's just because it was directed intravitrally that really causes a robust immune response. But what they've done... Go ahead. Say that one more time.
2: About it. So they have,
1: they have... So they're checking their blood samples. And so that's one of the things that they looked at because they were, seeing robu- they were seeing... I don't want to use the word robust, but they were seeing inflammatory responses in their patients as well and having to have them on chronic either drops or oral steroids and wondering why. Um, you know the obvious first answer is because it was injected intravitreally, and we know the intravitreal space is less immunoprivileged. but then they sort of just kept asking the question, "Well, is there anything about ex andrenoskeis patients that their immune system is more active?" And the answer is possibly yes because and I, I can't remember exactly what they it was a toll receptors. You know do you remember what they were what antibody levels they were assessing? I think it was a toll receptor yeah. so there's something called toll-like receptor that's part of the uh, one of the um, I think it's the adaptive immunity response. Um, And so there's an innate response that happens in the immune response when you get a virus. If if you've ever had the flu or other type of those viruses, there's an innate response and um, those are cytotoxic T cells and um, uh, killer cells um, and then macrophages. And then there's an adaptive immunity response where we have B cells that are our humoral response that are memory cells. And those are the ones that remember you've had a prior viral infection and sometimes protect you from getting that virus again. And then you have um, T cells that are a cellular response, and so they were measuring levels of sort of just baseline B cells, T cells, toll-like receptors. You know, I can't remember all of the antibodies they were testing in these patients, and they had higher baseline levels of, I believe it was particularly T cells um, than patients, but definitely don't quote me on that than uh, than baseline control patients that did not have extinct urticaria. So it means their immune systems are primed. To go, they're primed to be irritated, um, regardless of anything. So they just might be more immune reactive. Now, interesting that those those patients don't seem to get other immune autoimmune syndromes like rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's, and you know some of the other immune MS, you know things that are immune. Uh, they don't tend to get that, but maybe if you inject them with gene therapy, they're just going to be a little more reactive. So that's really the question that that trial brought up. Um, <clears throat> but the big, I think one of the biggest updates is it was recently released, and I, um, and I do advise this company and consult for this company, so I'll say that as a d- disclosure, Atsena Therapeutics, which is one of the um, companies that is found, funded and f- partially um, founded by Shannon Boy and Sanford Boy out of the FFB and partially funded by this RD fund out of FFB. It's sort of a highlight, you know, company to watch. Um, it's called Atsena Therapeutics. Um, it is uh, just press release recently, just publicly released recently, that the, the next disease that they're going to be working on is x retinoschisis, And so that's going to be a subretinal, and this is all disclosed or else I wouldn't be telling you, um, a subretinal approach. Um, so it's going to be requiring a vitrectomy and then subretinally getting that vector to where we really want it to go, which is directly to those photoreceptor cells. And the cool thing about the plan for the x retinoschisis program with that scene therapeutics is they're planning to use um, what they call... AAV.SPR. And SPR stands for spread. And so Shannon Boy, again one of my very good friends and an FFB person, um, she and her lab have developed a vector that because of the heparin sulfate binding domain properties of that vector has the capacity to spread past the area of the bleb. The word bleb means the area that we surgically create when we inject vector into the the subretinal space. And so say your area is you know this big, and you've made a nice little small bleb, and now we watch and we watch for in the the mouse model and in the NHP we have data that, you know, a, a couple weeks later that area expands almost to twice the margin of the of what you've treated, and the reason it does that is because of the capacity of that vector to spread to neighboring cells, which is what we want. We want to treat more retina. The question always is how do we get more retina treated without being able to make a bleb? Logistically, you just can't volume and dose wise cover the whole retina. You maybe best can cover 15 to 20 percent with a really big bleb um, the other thing with exincretina excuses is we don't want to have to put the bleb right under the central fovea because of those cystic cavities because it might be more dangerous to have to put a needle into that cystic cavity um, and so this will allow the surgeons and I do these surgeries uh, myself and other trials I, ha- I won't be a site for the exingretina excuses because I'm an advisor for the company um, but it allows us to put the needle maybe outside the macula outside that central fragile skin Area carefully lift the retina, make a small bleb, um, and not not have to detach the fovea. So the goal is, you know, not have to detach the fovea, but still have vector treat the fovea just by that neighboring spreading effect. So that's really certainly a trial to watch and, and, and exciting for the ex of community that that's on the way. I have to say personally, um, I've held back some of my patients from the intravitreal previous trials because I'm always real conservative in these new trials to sort of watch and wait a little bit and see a little bit before I send some patients. So I certainly have some um, patients that I uh, will be probably recommending you know to move forward and to, you know, again, watch and wait and see how things, things are looking. But I think that that certainly makes sense as a, um, a careful and conservative way and a safe way to effectively treat those photoreceptor cells. Um, and that's in the, the very near future for that, that company at Cena Therapeutics. So, um, and there may be others in the horizon that I don't know about, um, but those are, those are really the highlights, I think, of some of the current updates in those diseases that we're supposed to cover today. So I hope that helps just as an overview. Oh, go ahead. Okay. And, um, but we were
2: there like a day before he was about to get treated. Wow. And he was about to have to take this giant bottle of steroids for a
1: very long period of time. hmm There there are risks to steroids. There are risks to topical steroids. Topical can cause glaucoma and cataracts over time. So we don't like to do really long-term steroids. Being in a less than three-month course of anything is usually okay. Even oral steroids. It's when we start doing longer than three-month regimens of things, and then we have if we start thinking about these triple regimens where we start adding methotrexate and celsept, and those are chemo drugs. You know, so those are immune-suppressing drugs. Um, I should say. And I do use them in lots of patients who need them, and they're they're relatively well tolerated. But you need to watch liver lab love, liver labs and um, you know certain other blood work. So we have to think about all these things. And, and being on steroids certainly can make you moody, make you not sleep well at night, make you gain weight. Um, you know, and I've I've seen this through all of my patients because I have been in trials where we have to keep patients on steroids for longer than three months, and sometimes even reintroduce them when they come back at nine months. You know, because they have recurrent ste- inflammation. So certainly something the field is talking about. Um, and paying more attention to and I think it's really interesting and what I always stress for these companies because I do work with a lot of different companies and I'm careful to be confidential but we do need as a field to share and collaborate because it helps everybody there's no reason to not talk you know so of course we understand that things are confidential and we get that but you know I think it's really helpful and it's starting to happen and a lot of these companies are really starting to um, be more collaborative as far as some of these panel discussions and we even had an FFB panel which was I forgot that this happened uh, um, the topic the symposium that the FNB, FFB put on, and Todd Durham and et al. put this together recently, was um, ocular gene therapy inflammation. And we had the clinical people talk about what we see. And we had the preclinical people talk about what they're seeing in the mice. And we all you know sat down together for an FFB symposium and said, how do we resolve some of this and path forward kind of questions. So uh, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's, it's good that people are paying attention to it and talking about it. There's so many inclusion-exclusion criteria, you'd have to wait until we see the exact protocol. So some of those protocols haven't even been written yet. Um, Now, a a typical thing a protocol will say would be any ocular condition that would um, make them unsafe to have the therapy or to put them at further risk or... um, change their ability to follow any efficacy outcome. So it can lead sometimes those will be vague and sometimes it'll be up to the investigator discretion. So it'll be up to the the PI at the site that is the investigator you know, seeing you. You almost always we like to invite patients who are interested to a screening visit if they don't you know, obviously not meet some criteria. So usually we would do a full screening visit and see if you meet all the criteria for that particular protocol. Um, that that one could probably be okay you know if they've had a glaucoma surgery that's going to be an exclusion so previous surgery anything you know invasive any previous gene therapy the product they actually had interestingly you bring up a point you know what if they were in a trial but they either screen failed or a control patient usually that's completely okay you know we realize they didn't have anything done to the eye Um, so but I don't want to speak for all the possible protocols this will be so you know it'll be written into the protocol and your investigator will will check all those things
3: and that was a really great, uh, sorry, a really great transition. Is my mic on? Yeah, thanks. Uh, really great transition. So as as Dr. K talked about the different clinical trials and all the excitement uh, around those, and and of course some of the the, um, the things we've learned over over time, and the and the clinical inclusion criteria, um, I'll talk more about the genetics and maybe how that relates to the genetic inclusion criteria. If anyone has any questions, um, so. When we when we talk about um, clinical diagnosis and we talk about genetic diagnosis, those are actually two different things. So someone who presents to their ophthalmologist and has the spoke wheel appearance and uh, is diagnosed with with and then after looking at the family history, um, sees that there are males affected who are all in the maternal lineage and that uh, defines it as X-linked. And so the patient then has a clinical diagnosis of X-linked retinaschesis. Um, and you put those things together, how the family history and how the, the clinical features line up. And then uh, we send genetic testing. So if you've had genetic testing through um, the National Eye Institute or, or through the iGene program, at least since 2017, uh, I've probably been involved with that. Uh, we run the, the clinical lab there. Um, and so what we, what we do with the, um, with the genetic testing is that we try to understand somebody's clinical diagnosis and family history and then try to see if the genetic variants um, in that patient line up with, with what we think about for the, the clinical diagnosis. And really the inclusion criteria for the clinical therapy trials are uh, are very similar. They're trying to marry the Clinical, um, the clinical diagnosis with the molecular diagnosis, and so I'll talk a little bit about the different conditions, and I'll go in in reverse order just for fun to see if I can remember that. But for X-linked retinitis, um, again, it is X-linked, um, and. For patients who who are are male with an early onset spoke wheel appearance um, and uh, and possibly peripheral schesis with a clear X-linked history, and that would be um, a a male and say his maternal uncles or his maternal grandfather um, or or maternal cousins, um, that those individuals have a similar presentation uh, that when we sequence the RS1 gene, which is the only gene known to cause X-linked retinaschesis, that the, um, the chance of us finding a genetic variant is about 95%. In fact, we, we almost always assume that in patients with X-linked retinaschesis that we will find a genetic change in the RS1 gene. And through um, a lot of work uh, with uh, with Paul Sieving's lab and, w- and with other labs who have studied this, this gene and the genetic variants, um, that's really solidified those those variants. So the, the genetic inclusion criteria for the X-linked um trials are, are um, uh, it's, it's beneficial to have genetic testing, In um, the vast majority of the time we will find uh, a change in the, in the RS1 gene that we know is, is associated. And um, I- importantly, for the clinical trials that do gene augmentation, that is to put in a normal um, copy of the gene or a normal copy of the cDNA of that gene into the viral vector, those are all due to mechanisms um, that are loss of function. And so for the genetic changes for RS1, those cause RS1 to either um, not be expressed um, uh, or to express a a protein that is non-functional. And so far, at least, there's not a difference, there's not a genotype-phenotype correlation between those different kinds of variants, the variants that either uh, reduce the expression or eliminate the expression of rs1, or the variants that cause a, a non-functional protein um, to be made, so. Uh, and, and the reason I'm going from from rs1 to to others is because that is one of the um, the the uh, more more simple um, genetic genotype phenotype correlations that that we see that there's not there's one condition there's one gene and we don't see differences between different genetic changes um, and, and phenotypes and again um, as Dr. K mentioned that the um, that the uh, female carriers and so. Um, uh, Uh, individuals who are um, uh, genetically female at birth have two X chromosomes and so um, they carry one of the genetic changes in RS1, and that genetic change is passed on to male children who will uh, express uh, the, the disease, X-linked um, uh Females who are carriers don't appear to have a phenotype. Um, there are some reports of very subtle, what we would call subclinical changes, um, but those are not, not something that is relevant to, to somebody's visual health and not something that would, that would need to be um, treated. Um, that's in contrast to um, X-linked choroideremia um, where males are affected, and sometimes um, female carriers are affected. For X-linked choroideremia, um, there may be, in terms of the genotype phenotype correlations, there may be some slight differences between some of the loss of function or the, the, the loss of function variants. And again, choroideremia, like X-linked retinoschisis, is due to loss of function. And, there are, and that's why both X-linked retinaschesis and X-linked choroideremia have a gene augmentation approach so far to those, those clinical trials, that is putting the normal cDNA back into the eye to express the normal protein to recover that, that lost function. For, for choroideremia, there may be some subtle genotype-phenotype correlations, um, but as for uh, inclusion criteria for the trials, um, that's not uh, distinguished. Um, it doesn't, it, just having a pathogenic variant in the choroideremia gene, that is you can have exon deletions or you can have loss of function variants or you can have variants that cause the protein to be non-functional. Um, but the, that is not dis- distinguished for uh, clinical trial inclusion. For uh, f- female carrier, so um, so the, the females who have one X chromosome with the choroideremia change and one without, some ha- do express uh, a milder uh, retinopathy. Um, it may be uh, later onset and, and certainly more uh, slowly progressive. And we don't know why that is. Um, the What happens in, in everybody's cells who has two X chromosomes is that one of those X chromosomes is inactivated. And this actually happens um, when uh, sperm and egg come together with one one fertilized egg as even before it starts dividing or within the first couple of cell divisions that um, that the uh, the X uh, chromosome um, is eventually when when we go from one cell to billions of cells that we have um, that we do have a uh, an, an activation um, of one X chromosome and it's random so in every cell of the body one X chromosome is inactivated and one is not and so one of the thoughts was that, well, maybe for uh, choroideremia in the eye, maybe there's a difference in which X chromosome is inactivated and which one is not. And when when we look, and, and there are um, different techniques you can use to look and see at least in the blood, um, if there is a difference in which of the um, X chromosomes is active, and so because one is inactivated, one is expressed. So the hypothesis was that the uh, in females with choroideremia who have disease, that the X chromosome with the genetic change is expressed more than the one that does not, and for female carriers of choroideremia who do not have disease, that they express the uh, choroideremia gene without the genetic change. Um, but when, when people look, it's not as clear-cut as that. And so far, we can only really look in blood. We haven't been able to, to look in the eye. Um, and so that why some women with uh, X-linked choroideremia with the, the female carrier type phenotype have disease is really um, under investigation still and there's again might be subtle findings in female carriers of excellent choroideremia who have very subtle changes but that just don't manifest in a way that we can see them yet. And so so that's an an area of active investigation. And there have been some recent papers looking at adaptive optics. You've probably heard about adaptive optics technology where you can look really closely at individual cells and and looking to see if there are any changes that escape what we're able to to look at in the the back of the eye. Um, So then uh, moving uh, moving from X-linked retinaschesis and X-linked choroideremia. The other X-linked condition uh, is blue cone monochromacy, and it, it has similar uh, similar features to um, uh, in terms of the inheritance. Of women who are carriers of X-linked uh, blue cone monochromacy um, do not uh, tend to have any vision changes, so that's more similar to X-linked retinaschesis. The genetics of blue cone monochromacy are, are very complicated, and so, um, as we know, about 8% of uh, of men have red-green color blindness, and so we have a we have these two copies of a uh, an opsin gene that encodes a red opsin, so le- uh, lets us distinguish uh, things that are red or is is activated by objects that are red or reflecting um, red light, and uh, an opsin that is uh, uh, more sensitive to green, and so these genes are lying right next to each other. And it's a really complicated um, genetic story, but you can have deletions, or you can have rearrangements of the genes, or you can have very subtle to the changes of the genes that are inactivated. Um, But the genetic testing is is much more complicated than for uh, retinaschesis or choroideremia. And I should have added that with X-linked choroideremia, with a clear X-linked history, and um, and, uh, and very typical uh, phenotype in a male with, with an X-linked history of a pattern of other males in the maternal lineage affected, um, you can detect a change in the CHM gene most of the time, maybe not as much as we see for X-linked Um, and there's a lot of active investigation to try to understand some of the missing um, genetic changes for, for X-linked choroideremia. For for blue cone monochromacy, also X-linked, it is more complicated because the way that we do the sequencing for for the Opsin genes, it's very difficult to distinguish the red gene from the green gene because they're 99% identical. And sometimes we see genetic changes that we know may lead to um, X-linked color blindness in men. Um, And so the X-linked color blindness in men is due to an activation of either the red gene or the green gene. Um, But blue cone monochromacy is an activation of both the red gene and the green gene. So while X-linked color blindness in men is about 8% of of males, at least in in the United States and in Europe, that we have, um, that when we inactivate both the red and the green gene to cause blue cone monochromacy, that's much more rare. It's about one in 100,000 individuals. so uh, those are the X-linked conditions and some of the the genetics uh, behind behind those. And, and again, at, at this stage for these conditions, um, having a a deleterious change um, is an inclusion criteria. For for putting back a normal copy of the of the gene through the viral vector, and all three of those blue cone monochromacy, choroideremia, X-linked retinoschisis, are due to loss of function of those genes, and so the strategy is is currently gene augmentation to put the normal gene uh, the normal gene back. Um, the cone rod and um, achromatopsia. I'll actually talk about um, more together. So those are are much more complicated, and and in fact, um, some of the uh, as Dr. Kay mentioned, with blue cone mono with the blue cone monochromacy locus, that opsin locus. Sometimes patients don't present with blue cone monochromacy, which means they're able to um, respond or or distinguish. Things along the blue spectrum, but things not along the red-green spectrum. And they also have nystagmus and high myopia and, and other features. Sometimes patients with genetic changes in the opsin locus can actually have a cone dystrophy, uh, which is a degenerate, which can be a, a stable or or slowly progressive degeneration of the cone photoreceptors. Um, and, and sometimes they may also present, um, if they have more severe vision loss and are, it's very difficult to do the color vision testing, they may appear as if they have um, achromatopsia. And so um, so now moving into to achromatopsia and cone-rod dystrophy, there's, there's actually can be quite a bit of overlap among those. For achromatopsia, it's typically what we call autosomal recessive inheritance, and so that means that um, each parent is a carrier. So this is not on the X chromosome anymore. This is on uh, one of the other 22 pairs of of chromosomes. And so because they're paired, we have two copies of each gene. One comes from one parent and one comes from another parent. And so um, when each parent is a carrier, and sometimes this is... Um, this is, uh, for the most part, just random chance. Sometimes there are different um, variants in, in certain populations that we call founder variants. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's random chance that, that uh, one parent is a carrier, another parent is a carrier. And if they each pass down um, that genetic change, and that's about uh, one half for each parent uh, uh, t- for this to occur, and it's of course nothing that anybody could have predicted or prevented for the most part because you know we don't get um, we don't uh, typically get genetic testing in, in parents before they decide to have um, before they decide to have kids together. and and again, it is it is random chance and so um, and and that's of course you know very unfortunate. I know that, that a lot of you have have uh, struggled with this. And you know, I'm also happy to answer any questions around that, too. Um, and if, if each parent does pass down the genetic change, and that’s a 25 percent chance of, of passing that down, um, passing uh, both of them uh, to a child, and that child has two typically inactivated copies in, in a chromatopsia, that, that uh, will lead to, to that, um, that phenotype. And so the typical achromatopsia is CNGA3 and CNGB3, um, as Dr. K mentioned, and there are also some more recent um, achromatopsia-like genes, um, PDE6C and PDE6H and ATF6. Um, but as as we learn more and more about achromatopsia, and we learn more and more about the, these additional genes, we start to see some overlap um, between achromatopsia and um, and the slowly progressive uh, cone dystrophies. Achromatopsia is often. Quite stable. Um, uh, sometimes in in adolescence or later, you can you can see some some changes in the macula, um, and even with PD6C and PD6H, sometimes you can see um, even some mild uh, rod involvement, or you can see um, more sometimes an, an incomplete achromatopsia type uh, phenotype. And so this is more to say that that the clinical diagnosis and the molecular diagnosis, sometimes there's a little bit of confusion with that. Sometimes someone can carry a diagnosis of achromatopsia or they can carry a diagnosis of cone dystrophy or cone rod dystrophy and the genetic change that we find um, could be a surprise or the gene is not thought to be um, a a gene that's associated with a particular clinical diagnosis. And so that's something that, that we work a lot with um, the clinical team to try to help, to try to help understand this. And, and when we look in the literature, and more and more the literature is, is telling us that a lot of these genes do have a slightly wider spectrum than, than we anticipated. But interestingly, for the most part, these different achromatopsia genes all tend to be loss of function re- regardless of that, that phenotype. So there's not a strict genotype or the type of variant in the gene and the, um, and the clinical phenotype that we see. So the more and more that we study these, these conditions, we're starting to have to loosen a little bit of what we expect from, um, from the, the, clinical, um, the clinical features of these diseases. And we're realizing there's, there's more and more overlap. Um, for for cone-rod dystrophies, even even more complicated. This is where you have uh, involvement of the cones uh, and involvement of the rods in the periphery. Um, and typically the cone photoreceptors are affected first and, then, and those are those that are involved with your central vision, color vision. And when they're affected, um, we talked about photo aversion or, or having difficulty with glare with bright lights. And then with the rod photoreceptors, those are important for night vision and for your peripheral vision. So you see that in, in the visual fields. Uh, for the cone rod dystrophy, there's there's many genes. In fact, some of the the genes that cause cone rod dystrophy can also cause uh, retinitis pigmentosa. So there may be folks in the in the RP room or uh, folks who are in the Stargardt room. Um, And and there are some of the cone rod dystrophies that also cause different syndromes. Um, So uh, Bardet-Beetle, often these ciliopathies or the cone rod degenerations that may present in sort of middle to late childhood. Um, They may be uh, also associated with different features. So Bardet-Beetle syndrome, where the patients may have uh, extra fingers or toes, or they may have um, issues with the kidney or liver, or they may have um, obesity. Um, or Joubert syndrome, where they may have um, issues uh, with apnea or issues with um, with with brain malformation. So, cone rod dystrophies also encompass a very large spectrum, and sometimes um, individuals even in the same family may have just cone rod dystrophy, whereas their sibling may have the syndromic form. But again, for the most part, um, those that are in, that are autosomal recessive, where you require the two genetic changes, are also. Uh, loss of function, and that spectrum of individuals who have um, the syndromic forms or or have medical issues outside of the eyes in addition to the eyes, and those who have just the retinopathy, there's not been a clear genotype-phenotype correlation. And as I mentioned, if you see individuals in the same family, someone who doesn't have the syndrome and someone who does have the syndrome with the same genetic changes, that tells us that there's something else that's that's important for understanding this spectrum um, of disease, and also with... Um, trying to understand our expectations when we see a gene and genetic variance and how do we make that harmonize with the with the clinical uh, features that are that are being um, observed and being considered for, for the gene therapy trials? Um, and then there are some cone rod dystrophies um, that was mentioned earlier, GUCY2D. Um, some of those uh, can be loss of function, like the autosomal recessive forms, and some of them can be um, gain of function or have changes to the function of the protein that gives it different properties. And in, that, in those cases, that's, that's where the strategy for gene therapy changes. Because if the, if the protein is there and doing something it's not supposed to do or functioning um, functioning too much, um, then, and that's what's causing the problem, you have to be able to reduce that abnormal function and then to normalize, and then um, and then one of the strategies now is the sort of knock down and replace, as, as was mentioned, to be able to reduce um, that abnormal activity and then replace with a normal um, copy of the gene. And the other strategy is um, it would be um, CRISPR uh, gene editing to just change that variant back to, um, back to the, the normal configuration. Um, and so I, I think that that covers a lot of, of what I wanted to talk about with how your genetic testing um, intersects with the um, intersects with the genetic inclusion criteria. Um, but I will say that uh, that genetic testing currently is uh, is is. Uh, concerns clinical trials, or interfaces with clinical trials, for the most part for inclusion criteria so that the patient needs to have what we consider a, a confirmed genotype or genetic variants that are known to be disease-causing to enroll in that in that clinical trial. And different diseases have have different rates of success with genetic testing. We talked about X-linked retinaschesis being um, over 95%. Cone-rod dystrophy has many genes, many more genes, but even if we sequence all of those genes, we maybe have a 50% chance of of finding the genetic cause. So we're working very hard to understand that and sequencing more genes and considering that maybe some of the individuals with cone-rod dystrophy maybe have genetic changes in genes that are are unexpected and trying to understand those uh, sort of genotype-phenotype correlations. So, um, so I think the big take home is, is genetic testing is important for gene specific therapies is often an inclusion criteria um, and that if you don't have that genetic change that working with your provider or with researchers to help to, to find that missing piece can be really helpful. The other thing that, that we're starting to move into more and more now is trying to understand are there, if there is not clear genotype phenotype correlations in terms of of a patient's presentation, could there be genotype phenotype correlations in relation to how somebody responds to therapy? And so that's something that is um, is uh, is an active field of investigation. and and how the genetic testing might play into um, the outcomes is something we can think about in terms of in terms of personalized medicine. And we've definitely talked about, there have been, uh, as Dr. K talked about, there are, are specific outcome measures. And a lot of those outcome measures are what is what would be a measurable change over the time in which um, that the, the clinical trial will observe uh, those responses to therapy over time. And if we understand that different people may have different rates of progression, can we predict that using some of these uh, genotype correlations? So while the genotype or the genetic testing may not necessarily tell us exactly how somebody um, might present with their, their clinical features at the first time of the visit, maybe we can understand a little bit better about how the genetic testing impacts um, the progression over time, or maybe impacts a person's uh, response to therapy. But with the size of the trials right now being, being relatively small, this is something we, we are sort of keeping in the, in the back of our heads as we're um, investigating more and more with natural history studies um, through, the, um, through the, the consortium, through the FFB. Um, and, and those trials like Rush 2A or, or ProEyes or others is trying to understand if genetic testing or the genotype should be included as, um, as part of the outcome measure as a way to predict how patients might respond. Um, so that's, I think, the, the overview for me, and um, I think we're happy to take any questions.
0: If you don't mind, for the questions, if we could have the mic runners provide microphones uh, so that... Uh... Others can hear the questions, too, who are plugged in. Thank you. Uh,
2: Thank you. As a carrier of choroideremia, I experience um, significant light sensitivity. I'm surprised I'm not in my sunglasses right now. But I see halos around each of you right now. And I also have um, scar tissue on my central vision in my left, in my right eye and around my central vision in my left eye. And I just had more genetic testing being done. It was sent off, but they're thinking I might have, Dr. Grover may, thinks I may have adult onset fovomacular dystrophy. Is that something that may be consistent with some of the other carriers that you have been, that may be part of your programs? Or is there something similar?
1: Um. So that's a, a, a very different disease. I certainly think it's possible to have two diseases, and, and that may be the case. I, I haven't seen your fundus, but when you first said to me you had macular scarring, I said that's very atypical of a tip of a choroideremia carrier. Miller, I do have said. one choroideremia carrier female who has, I wouldn't use the word scarring, but she actually has a, um, a some little active area that's almost like a choroidal neovascular membrane, and that cana uh, has been reported in female carriers with choroideremia to have. It's called a choroidal neovascular membrane. There's only a few papers, and I had a talk with the person who wrote that paper to compare if my patient might be one of the other ones I should write up, and um, she needed to have an injection of an anti-VEGF drug to control that. That also could just happen sporadically in some people, so we don't know for sure if these things are related or not to the choroideremia gene. Now, just to speak to a- adult-onset foveal macular dystrophy, or AVMED, <laughs> what I used to call it when I was at Iowa with Ed Stone and the gang, um, that is... I don't know how common the prevalence is, to be honest. We can defer that to Rob here. But um, that is, a, I see that not infrequently in my adult population. Um, it can mimic other diseases like macular degeneration. Uh, we call it pattern dystrophy. We have different names for it. Um, it can look like macular degeneration. It could cause a choroidal neovascular membrane. It can be associated with a few genes, so it's definitely worth now, that, I'm assuming that would have been checked in your first panel, though, because we often check the RDS gene, um, RDS-perforin, the BEST1 gene, just to, to rule that out, IMPG1. RDS is probably the most common that I see actually a positive result for that, uh, retinal dystrophy, retinal dystrophin slow. So I have a few patients who have a positive RDS genetic finding who have the classic adult-onset foveal macular dystrophy. But I will say, and we can defer this here to Rob, um, that... It also, I think the genetic testing for that just must not be very good or we don't know all the genes because I have a ton of patients, not a ton, but maybe I would say like 50% or more of the time when I send a patient for genetic testing to the FFB MRT blueprint, um, when they have sort of classic pattern dystrophy, I'll get no mutations found. So that just means to me we haven't figured that one out yet. So there must be other mutations at play. curious your thoughts on that genetically
3: yeah no i i would i would agree with everything everything that um that dr Kane said so the um the the uh i think there's a there's a couple of things one one is that as uh, as i mentioned as we study more and more about these conditions we'll understand the spectrum much better and i think there does need to be more attention paid to uh carriers with uh some of these excellent conditions and and certainly more and more there are studies that are starting to come out um, the the group at um, uh, so that there, there's various groups who are working on on this um, right now and and uh, i think they've also been in touch with the corioryremia research foundation too um, so the um, the if you've had the genetic test you've had the genetic testing for corioryremia
2: it was a long time ago so it, dr grover was thinking that perhaps back because it was so long ago that maybe they were just focused at looking at the coridoremia because they already knew yeah, it was part of our family, family history. So he was wanting this done to rule it out. He was just trying to see if maybe it was there, rule it out. He did tell me that the scar tissue kind of stuff that I have, he does not believe is part of any of the carrier traits. He did tell me that that's not really associated normally with the carrier traits um, that he's aware of. Um, but I just I'm so hypersensitive to the light like when they just do the regular testing and they're moving the light across I have a whole physiological response like I literally am almost throwing up it burns like it hurts that badly so the testing that you were talking about the L LDT LDT I think Mm -hmm. I probably need to have that done
1: well, that usually, at this point, is typically only instituted within some of these clinical trials. It's actually oh, okay. not a standard outcome measure that I follow in my oh, okay. routine clinical practice. Okay. Um, and you, we have those machines at my practice because yeah. we do trials, but I don't think Dr. Grover is involved in those trials. So, um, But yeah. I'd be certainly happy to look at your images you know, offline yeah. here and see what, what I think of okay. that. But it, do, it does sound like there's either something else going on, or mm-hmm. you might be one of the rare female chorytoremia patients who has these neovascular membrane response. That be me. Um, And again, I haven't written the paper up yet, but I have another female carrier from elsewhere um, with a similar issue. And then there's literally one other paper I could find that's been published on these choroidal neovascular membranes that need anti-VEGF injections in females with choroideremia. So it must be something going on there that's probably related. But... It doesn't sound like that's what you're describing. If you just have a vitelloform dystrophy deposit, you may just also have vitelloform dystrophy. Okay. That would easily be solved with our blueprint genetics panel to at least rule out RDS, but again, I'd say 50-50, and there might there might be other genes at play okay. that we just don't know yet. All right, so if,
3: if you've eliminated those other potential genetic conditions mm-hmm. and are still left with, with CHM, you know, it, it could be still related to that. It could be also something that, you know, is not related to uh, the genetic changes. Um, and And it, again, I just want to reiterate you know with with rare disease, it often starts with an n of one or an n of two, so one or mm-hmm. just one or two people, and so you know there are rare manifestations um, in rare disease i would I would also add that for um, as we do genetic testing, the genetic testing um, as we we talked about the yield of genetic testing or what is the chance of finding the answer. Um, so the chance of finding the answer in, in kids, uh, when the presentation is during childhood or when the first symptoms are, are when, when they're a child or an infant or even an adolescent, are higher than when the presentation um, is, or the symptoms start when somebody's in even their 30s or 40s. And so we're, we don't know quite why, but it, it's probably some, something where we're shift, based on the age of onset, we're shifting from individuals who, who have genetic conditions caused by one gene to more complex diseases if if they're starting when when somebody's a little bit older. And maybe that's an intersection between multiple genes or between genes and the environment. You know, we're really not sure, but we do know that the chance of finding the genetic answer if the age when the symptoms start is, is in middle or late adulthood does drop off quite a bit.
1: Thank you. And the one thing I would say, and I, we must not have any achromatopsia patients at this conference because they would be in this room if they were here and we already pulled the room, but my achromatopsia patients have taught me that, and they're the most light sensitive patients in the world, um, that red tint and amber tint help a lot. Um, someone's probably already told you this, but that, that you can integrate into your daytime glasses a mild amber or a red tint, and that does seem to help very much for these sort of more cone-specific related photosensitivity issues.
2: Thank you very much.
3: And same, I would say same for any cone dystrophy or, or blue-cone monochromacy.
2: Um, um, I Both my sons have corduremia And when I was in my 30s um, and my eyes were examined, I was told, if I understood the doctor correctly, that I had a tigroid fundus. I don't know if that sounds familiar at all. Um, is that something that would... I, I'm obviously a carrier, and um, I guess I'm wondering about that, and then I'm wondering about not having any family history. I cannot think, I don't know of any cousins, uncles, grandparents, um, so it just kind of seemed to come out of the blue. So. Um, and I've just always kind of wondered about that. If you could speak sure. to that a little bit. Um, Thank so, you.
3: Is, uh, so these genetic changes happen. Um, and they, in fact, if we um, compare parents and children, there are still some genetic changes that are new to the child. And that's in large part because when, we're, when our cells are dividing from one cell to billions of cells, um, you have to copy every Every sequence of your DNA over and over and over again. And so sometimes genetic changes happen really early in, in development while these cells are dividing, while you're you know, copying this you know, hard drive of, of DNA. And and those handful of mistakes in the in the DNA copying can lead can be an important genes that can lead to these genetic changes. So we, we call that de novo changes when you don't see the condition. In the in the parents or in other relatives as might be expected and you only see the condition in in the sort of first person in the family and um, and if you do the genetic testing for the parents often most often they won't have the genetic change and you'll only find the genetic change in the person and that doesn't mean that their their parents are, are not their parents or anything like that it just means that that genetic change um, happened um, really early on when when that individual was developing and so all of the, the genetic changes that we see in our patients, all the genetic changes that we, that we have ourselves, they all started somewhere with some um, change in the DNA um, during, that, during that process. Um, so you may be the first person in your family who has that, and that was uh, has nothing to do with you know, during during pregnancy, has nothing to do with you know having a, a glass of wine or being exposed to secondhand smoke or anything like that. And it's nothing that anybody could predict or prevent. It's, it's nobody's fault. It just is something that happens, and unfortunately, it may happen in a in a critical gene. Thank you.
0: Sure. Uh, I had a question um, for you all. Uh, so, with a lot of these inherited retinal diseases, where we we know the causative gene, we can talk about potential types of gene therapy, as you described, to bring back a copy of the functional gene, the normal unaltered gene, to restore function of the protein. Can you guys speak about the approaches? You know, we hear a lot about these mutation agnostic approaches, so different types of therapeutics that are not necessarily dependent upon knowing your causative gene, and if those that are currently in development would um, be appropriate for the indications we're talking about today.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we could look at every single one of the diseases that we talked about today and think of some mutation agnostic or gene agnostic um, potential treatment. Um, you know, specifically, let's—I I would go from the order of maybe most severe disease um, to warrant some of the where the where the field right now is at with you know, say optogenetics, which is the probably the easiest one to sort of start with with a gene agnostic approach. That would, at least where the field is right now, and hopefully it'll continue to improve. It's a very exciting field. That would make sense really for a, a certain level of relatively severe visual impairment to warrant that type of a clinical trial for that patient or that type of a repair of vision, because optogenetics at this point isn't able to bring that 2020 resolution that we would want, you know, that we would sort of theoretically want. Um, it's more at the level of bringing someone from, you know, hand motion vision to maybe count fingers or light perception fingers to hand motion vision. So um, so certainly it would make sense for the field of choroideremia research, where we can have that end stage, you know, 60-year-old patient with choroideremia who does have motion vision, I think optogenetics would be a very interesting potential therapy for that type of a patient, as long as there are residual cell bodies that, that we can still target in that retina. So in a coiteremia, there can be diffuse, and that was actually some of the challenges with the subretinal gene therapy attempts and gene therapy for Those, The coiteremia retina can be very fragile and thin. Um, again, just thin is sort of the easiest word, and as we try to do a subretinal injection into coiteremia retina, we have to be very careful where we place that cannula. So as long as there are residual, either fiber layer ganglion cells that are still intact, or bipolar cells, or theoretical you know, some cell in the retina other than a photoreceptor RP cell, um, you know, theoretically that might be able to trigger some type of a, a photoresponse um, with those with those uh, as, and again as long as optic nerve pathways are still intact. So not dependent on either RPE or photoreceptor being present, you know, that's the idea of an optogenetics response. Uh, for patients, you know, with maybe a chromatopsy where they still have 2,200 vision and lead relatively you know, uh, stable stationary visual courses throughout their life, that might not be a benefit to them yet since you know I don't think that would likely improve them much past 2,200 or address the color vision issues. Um, and then other you know, oral drugs and neurotrophic factors and additive factors, things to slow things down, I think the antioxidant therapies, you know, so N-acetylcysteine, I'm very interested in that. We're going to be a site for that potential trial, which is Peter Campuchero's work on a phase 1-2 that showed slowed visual field loss in patients who were on this very strong antioxidant called N-acetylcysteine. Uh, there's a good paper, he published the results, that they basically saw visual field Um, preservation, so slowed reduction of visual field in patients who are on the strong antioxidant NAC or N-acetylcysteine versus control patients, that therapy probably makes sense for everything, (laughs) you know, including arthritis and whatever else ails you, you know, so honestly, I think that Slowing oxidative stress is such a nice panacea type of a therapy that it might make sense for every single disease that we talked about today. Again, we need to always study things and see if it's safe and if we have real benefits and it's not on label yet and we have all these conversations with these patients. But even as physicians in in real life, we do actually mention some of these off-label therapies to patients with a very important caveat of need to have your physician check your liver enzymes and to to see where you're ordering this drug. But for instance, N-acetylcysteine can be ordered. It's a supplement. It won't be the correct dose and it won't be the, you know, pharmaceutical uh, uh, grade therapy, but you, you can order some of these things off of Amazon. You know, it's not that I'm advertising doing that, but so some, some of those types of things, and then we've got things like fish oil and lutein and vitamins and things that might slow preservation, slow or um, preserve the retina. Those are types of therapies that might be good for a number of these that are not mutation-specific.
3: And and I would say even the genetics might be, uh, while the inclusion criteria don't include the knowing the genetic cause for those gene agnostic therapies, so for those who have Clearly have have a cone rod dystrophy or who have choroideremia, um, but don't have the the genetic change that might be required for the inclusion into one of these gene specific therapies. Genetic that sort of genetic inclusion criteria is not necessarily uh, the in, uh, not necessarily an inclusion criteria for these gene agnostic therapies. So for those who who don't know the the gene that's causing their condition. That can be a, a really uh, good alternative, if the um, if, if the clinical criteria are met. Um, but I will say that those gene agnostic um, therapy trials are also considering what are who or what um, genetic causes might have differences in the in the response, so that if it's, um, say, for, for N-acetylcysteine or for optogenetics, um, understanding the genetic cause um, can, be, uh, can be helpful or at least worth looking at after the end of the trial to see if some patients did respond. Was it potentially because of the, the gene um, that was missing that, that is leaving the cells in a certain state that allows them to, to still respond to that, that treatment? So the genetics are still important and, and we'll still work with that, but it, but at least it, it provides um, an avenue for folks who don't know um, the genetic cause to uh, pursue those gene agnostic therapies if they wish.
1: We
0: have room for about, time for about one more question, yes, uh, can we get the microphone? Thank you. Um, for genetic testing, would does it make sense to have it done from different labs and um, several years apart from each other. I had it done in '07, and nothing came back. It was all undetectable. And then last year I had one gene found and then they said there was another mutation but they didn't have a name for it or couldn't identify what it was. And then um, as far as siblings, I have a half-brother who, we have the same dad. Our dad's passed away. My sister, same, both the same parents. Her and I both have visual impairment. Does it make sense to have my brother's genes tested to see if that would tell us anything on my dad's side?
3: Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think in and I'll, I'll start with the first question and move into the the second question. Uh, so the first question uh, is is about you know how often should you have your, your genetic testing uh, redone or done again if you don't have an answer. So uh, it makes it makes a lot of sense if you had your genetic testing done in 2007, which was almost exclusively looking one gene at a time or at a small handful of genes or a small handful of sites by Sanger sequencing, to now everything being done on you know, hundreds of genes at a time. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to, if you don't have the answer since 2007, to have the genetic uh, testing done, done now. Um, from, from here, um, where we're, we're often looking is, um, is, we are sequencing most, if not all, of the associated genes at, at this point. Um, and most of the laboratories have, um, have high overlap between the genes and they all include the, the sort of major or the, the most common causes. The ones that might be different from lab to lab maybe have a very, very small um, difference of maybe you know 1% or 2% of, 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 uh, of patients may, may find a change in, in one test but not another test. In fact, I think it's about less than 1% at this point. Um, but the so they're they're fairly well aligned. Um, the depending on the genetic changes, if there are genetic changes that match the inheritance pattern of that gene, so and the inheritance pattern in the family. so for instance, if if neither of your parents are affected but or were affected, um, and then your, um, you and your uh, full sibling are both affected. Then the the most likely is autosomal recessive, and that means one carrier from mom and one carrier one from one parent, one from another parent. And so, um, in in and did you and and may I may I ask uh, if you found? Uh, sorry, I don't ask you directly, but if you found. Um, Two genetic changes in one gene, and your sister has the same two genetic changes um, in in that gene. And if you were able to you know to test your your mother and, and find that she only has one genetic change, or you're able to test one parent or another parent and then find that the one one parent has a genetic change, um, but is only a, a carrier and doesn't have both, then that that Often starts to give you the, the picture of, of here's a gene that matches the inheritance pattern where we found two genetic changes. And even if there's some uncertainty, sometimes we will pause testing at that point if the, uh, even if they're uncertain variants, if the gene matches the inheritance pattern and matches the, uh, the clinical diagnosis. Sometimes it's, it's okay to pause at that point and then wait to see over time if those variants of uncertain significance, if more and if more uh, literature or more in the public databases becomes available so that those that uncertainty is reduced and that in the future you may not have to resequence or or give another blood sample but the laboratory may go back and do what's called a reanalysis and reevaluate those genetic changes and see if there is additional information in public databases or in the literature that changes um, the, the variants from being uncertain to being likely pathogenic or, or pathogenic is the, the term that most genetic uh, laboratories use. Um, so it, it, it sort of depends if you, if you still don't have a gene that matches the expected inheritance pattern. And, and certainly sometimes um, we, we do see, and it's less common, but say if, if two siblings are affected, and neither parent uh, is affected, then sometimes there there can be a what we call a mosaic genetic change in one parent that is passed down to two unaffected to two affected individuals, and it can be a gene that's normally autosomal dominant. Um, that's that's less common, but if, if you do have I guess a a genetic um, testing report that matches inheritance pattern and clinical diagnosis. Um, sometimes it's okay to pause, but if you still don't have um, that genetic testing chain that uh, those changes in a gene that would sort of match the, the clinical diagnosis or the inheritance, you know, then maybe it, it's worth in a few years um, doing another genetic test. Does that does that help with that that question?
0: All right, well, thank you again. Uh, This concludes this session. Thank you for uh, great questions, attendees, and please join me in thanking our great speakers for today.